Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I report from Edinburgh, where I was a guest last week at an event held by the Scottish Centre for Doctoral Training in Condensed Matter Physics and the Centre for Doctoral Training in Quantum Materials. The meeting covered many aspects of PhD training, with lots of useful information about how students can give their careers a boost, both during their time at university and after they've graduated. Coming up on the podcast, I chat with Alex Coates about his experience of being the physics postgraduate representative on Harriet Watt University's Students' Union. He shares his experiences of helping his fellow PhD students face the unique challenges of postgraduate life. But first, I catch up with Chris Hooley, who is Senior Lecturer in Theoretical Condensed Matter Physics at St. Andrews University and Operations Director of the Scottish Doctoral Training Centre in Condensed Matter Physics. And joining us are two CDT students, Freya Bull and Ben Gada. Together, they explain what a Centre for Doctoral Training is and talk about the benefits of doing a PhD within a CDT. Hi, Chris. Can you tell us a bit about this conference that uh, you've helped organize here in Edinburgh? Sure. So this is a joint spring event for the Condensed Matter Centre for Doctoral Training and the Quantum Materials Centre for Doctoral Training, uh, both sort of tri-institutional entities on the east coast of Scotland involving St Andrews, Edinburgh and Harriet Watt. Um, This is one of the two annual big events that we do. There's a science conference in December and then there's a training event usually in the spring. The idea of the training event is to explore all the things that make a well-rounded PhD student beyond having good research and writing a good thesis. So in this event, for example, we've had skills training workshops in the areas of public engagement and applying for funding. We ran some mock panels, uh, people ranked proposals and we had little prizes and so on. Um, Several of our industrial partners have kindly come in, joined us for dinner, participated in some panel discussions about careers in industry and what to think about when you're selecting which industry to work in. We've got several former CDT students who've kindly come back to take part in some panel discussions uh, about next steps after the PhD. We have poster sessions where the current students present their research to the visitors and and to each other. So it's generally a a kind of broad um, skills training event where we try and get everyone together, do a bit of everything, um, and just get the students talking to each other and, and developing their skills. Um, I have to say, I've, I've been here for two days, uh, I suppose, as part of the industrial panel, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's been a great conference, and, and thanks for the invitation. Now, the, a Centre for Doctoral Training, or a, a CDT, that's a, a, a very sort of UK concept. Um, and uh, for the benefit of our listeners outside of the UK, Chris, can you just explain what a, a Centre for Doctoral Training is? H- how does it work and why would somebody choose to, to do a PhD in, uh, in using that route? Sure. So, I mean, the idea of Centres for Doctoral Training started to be explored in the UK almost 20 years ago, but it really became big with the foundation of a lot of CDTs, 70 or so, in, in 2008. Um, and the programme's been running since then. 
The idea is really to create a bit of critical mass in a certain research area. So rather than having a small number of PhD students in, say, condensed matter physics in St Andrews and a small number in Edinburgh and a small number in Heriot-Watt who maybe don't really have routine ways of meeting or talking to each other, getting to know their colleagues, exchanging ideas, Instead, we centrally coordinate a centre for doctoral training uh, where all of the students, although they're registered at those three universities, are all members of the CDT. There's central administration of the CDT, central record keeping, and lots of centrally organised events. So it's, also, it's a way of students getting more than the, the base PhD in terms of skills training, but also building networks and just having a larger group of people that they're connected to who are working in a similar research area. Oh, that's, that sounds really interesting. So um, with us are two um, CDT students, um, Freya Bull, who works um, on the condensed matter side, and Ben Gada, who is uh, interested in quantum. So Freya, c can you give us an idea about why you, you chose the CDT route? Because it's my understanding that you can do a PhD without getting involved in a, in a CDT. So what was going through your mind when you made that decision? Yeah, sure. I'll try and cast my mind back four years to when I was making these decisions. And I think there were really three big things. So one is there's some financial incentive to be funded through a CDT in that they pay us a little bit more for a little bit longer. We have a slightly bigger travel budget, which is very nice. Um, the second one was, as Chris mentioned, we do get extra support in our skills training. We do some more courses. And this really appealed to me because I had not really much clue what I wanted to do. And I felt totally underprepared and underqualified. And I was like, I want to know more about this field. And of course, it also comes with a bit more flexibility because the money's a little bit more attached to, to you rather than to your supervisor's research grant and their specific project that they want you to do. And the third one was actually being surrounded by all these other students. You have a much stronger sense of community and support. And like this sort of cohort is, is very uh, beneficial and when I came to interview and I met everyone else who was interviewing, I was just sort of like, these are the people for me. This is the place I want to be. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And, and c c can you tell us a bit um, uh, about your research? What, what, what are you looking into? Yeah, so I think my research always takes people a bit by surprise um, because they all know I'm a physicist and I do physics. And then I start talking about what I actually do. And what I do is I try and develop mathematical models for urinary tract infections and specifically for catheter-associated urinary tract infections. So I, I work with a lot of bacteria and a lot of maths. And um, what my actual sort of group is, is known as population dynamics, which is very closely linked to say fluid dynamics in terms of the actual equations we work with. Um, and what I have been doing in the last four years is a lot of literature searching, a lot of thinking, and then I write down some maths and I think about it some more, and eventually I'll simulate this maths. And then I found some results, which is a pleasant bonus that I didn't anticipate at the start. And um, I mean, it sounded like you had some pretty high expectations for the, for the CDT program. I mean, have things worked out? I mean, are you, you know, is, is your research going well? Or are you happy with the, the sort of training and, and community aspect of it? Yeah, honestly, this is something I've been thinking about recently, I guess, because I'm coming towards the end of, of my time here, that I am so thankful for the decisions I made four years ago. I feel like in, in that position, actually, I couldn't have made a better choice. The CDT has been so incredibly supportive throughout a very, very difficult time in the world. Um, and Chris, especially, as well as 
everyone else involved in the leadership and then the whole community around us, I feel like I have come through my PhD in a much better position than most other people who had separate sorts of sources of funding. And in the end, um, the courses didn't really mean much to me. The extra money is nice, but I haven't spent most of it because we haven't been able to leave the country. But having that support behind me has been invaluable and irreplaceable. And what about you, Ben? Why, why did you decide to go down the, the CDT route? Um, so I think mine was a lot more academic-based. So I'm a, I'm a chemist by, by kind of degree. Um, but so I'm, I'm part of the quantum material CDT here now. And the, the CDT is quite interdisciplinary in that sense. I, I'm working now with a lot of physicists, um, which means I, I get the chance to kind of expand my my world of science um, more towards the physics aspect, which I think in a lot of places there's there's sadly uh, a big kind of um, well everyone kind of sees their science as as the thing um, and there's not a lot of communication between between the sciences and so I think with the CDT I have I have a very good sh good shot at kind of uh, expanding my, my knowledge through the sciences um, and besides that, one thing that, that Chris mentioned is that there's kind of this bigger community, this critical mass. Um, and with that comes a lot of opportunities to, to run different experiments and to get a lot of input from people with expertise, which you might not have if you work on a, on a more local scale, I think. So for me, it was very much science um, driven. Um, I'm in my first year now, so I have had some of the experiences of kind of the community aspect and I've been really enjoying it um, because I mean in the end we're, we're still people and we have needs as people and, and my needs as a, as a person are being met with a, with a community sense of the CDT as well. So, so you mentioned that you're, you're in your first year. How, what does that mean in terms of your research? Have you, have you started your research project yet? Yes, so um, I have started and it's it's, um, it's been a bit slow at the start because as I just mentioned, I'm moving more towards the, the physics side. So I'm, I'm working on what's called quantum spin liquids um, from, a, from a chemistry point of view, sort of. So, so what that means is you've got, you've got essentially frustrated electrons that are frustrated for, for one reason or another. It can be like the lattice and the lattice kind of, the electronic structure of the ions you're working with determines the kind of interactions you get. And, and so you have your electrons being frustrated, um, in, in theory at least, but, but in, in reality, they're often not frustrated. So, so as a chemist, my, my role is to kind of see why the systems are not frustrated and to manipulate the structures in a sense. So, so that's kind of the science I've been working on. And um, I'm working really closely with physicists on it to kind of uh, get a grip of the properties and so on. Um, yeah. So, so this idea of um, you know finding a scientific community to further your research, I, I mean, it sounds like like it's working. Um, it, it, has it met your expectation so far? And 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 here, you know, here's a loaded question: Are you going to feel like a physicist when you come out of this, <laughs> rather um, than a chemist? I don't want to feel like a physicist. Um, oh, that's fair enough. I, I want I want to feel like a scientist, um, and I think. Uh, I'm certainly moving in the right direction because I have all this chemistry knowledge. 
um, and I'm kind of going into some of the more physics knowledge. So I've, through the CDT, I've been able to to take like master level courses of physics, which I'm not going to lie to you, they were a bit overwhelming at the start, kind of going into these level of courses without any kind of uh, teaching in, in this area before. Um, but so through these opportunities and, you know, like being exposed to so much kind of more physics research, um, uh, I think I'm, my expectations have been mostly met. I think there's, there's even, even within kind of like this setup of wanting the, the sciences to speak, there's still room to improve. Um, I think certainly on, on the chemistry side of the CDT, there's still a lot to be done. In, in terms of recruiting chemists into this area of physics, because it can be quite quite scary. You're kind of leaving the area of where you're good at, and you're talking to people that are really good at what they're doing, and you're kind of like not quite there yet. But if you if if, if it's possible to change this kind of perspective into you actually um, becoming a a fully fledged scientist as opposed to a chemist or a physicist, I think that that's quite valuable. Yeah, that's good stuff. And Chris, you've been so kind as to invite me to this conference, the first conference I've been to since 2019. So um, I, I think it's it's only it's my duty to give you a, a chance to for an elevator pitch for prospective students out there. So so why, if if you're interested in condensed matter physics or quantum physics, why would you turn up at St Andrews? What are the benefits there? Well, I think one of the great things we've achieved over the past 10 or 15 years is really to establish a critical mass of research uh, at St. Andrews, at Edinburgh, at Heriot-Watt in the area of condensed matter and quantum materials. There have been millions of pounds worth of investment by the universities, millions of pounds worth of investment by the, the Scottish government. Uh, we now have really state-of-the-art experimental facilities, computational facilities. We've got some very good theoretical physicists. We can, we can do a really kind of cradle-to-grave, you know, synth synthesize the sample, characterize its properties, do some sophisticated measurements, do some computational work to work out what's going on, do some theoretical work to work out what's going on, and all in a very collaborative environment where people really do talk. Um, so yeah, if, if that's the kind of thing you'd be interested in contributing to, and if you'd like to broaden your horizons in kind of the way that Ben was discussing, um, we'd really like to hear from you. Uh, we've almost finished recruitment for, for admission in, in autumn 2022, but there'll be another round of recruitment for admission in autumn 2023, and we're open for inquiries at, at any time. Yeah, well, well, that's great. Well, Freya, Chris, and Ben, thanks so much for speaking to me. Thank you. Thank you. Doing a PhD involves fulfilling several roles. You work as a researcher, you're a student, and you may also do some teaching or an industrial placement. Add to that the myriad ways that a PhD can be funded, and it's easy to understand why some students find it difficult to know their rights and responsibilities within a university. Alex Coates is doing a PhD at Harriet Watt University where he studies energy transport in open quantum systems. He also spent three years as the physics postgraduate representative on Harriet Watts Students' Union. He gave a fascinating talk in Edinburgh about some of the challenges that he encountered when helping his fellow students navigate the university system. I caught up with Alex for a chat after his talk. 
Hi, Alex. I really enjoyed your talk this morning, and in particular, I was intrigued by this concept of a hidden curriculum. Things that PhD students should know, but they don't because nobody tells them. You started with an intriguing example about shoe color. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, of course. So uh, the hidden curriculum is this sociology term, which is all about things that you get taught implicitly uh, without anyone explicitly uh, uh, telling you about it. So, for example, you know, um, you know, if, if a teacher always responds negatively to you shouting, you learn you should never speak loudly. Um, you know, so it applies in lots of cases. But I'm really interested in the other end of that, where you are expected to know things that at no point you're meant to be told. So this example came from uh, 2016. The government did this um, social mobility uh, study where they were looking at investment banks and they found out that actually in investment banks, um, if you were wearing brown leather or tan leather shoes to an interview, that was considered totally taboo. And of course, only people in really sort of, you know, sort of upper middle class or in former banking families knew about this. Anyone else who was fully qualified went along and was looked down upon because they had the wrong shoes on. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a really important starting place for thinking about um, all these kinds of things in academia. It's a very opaque system and there's lots and lots of moving parts, applying for money, conferences, how to even write in the expected formats. You know, no one outside of physics really uses LaTeX. So it applies across, um, you know, a really large range of uh, things that affect PhD students. You mentioned LaTeX in your talk, and you, you said that you discovered that there wasn't a standard template for PhD students to use to write up their theses. And that seems like a really basic thing. Why wasn't there a, a standard template available? And what did you do to remedy the problem? Uh, yeah, so this was just an, um, a question that came up because, of course, I know people further along the PhD track than me. and. You know, they were always saying, oh, I, you know, where is it? Why doesn't one exist? It turns out, you know, one had been made literally a decade ago now, and it was very incomplete because it was just made by a helpful student. Um, and, you know, here, you know, if we're tying it back to the hidden curriculum, there is the expectation that you have been using LaTeX, this very specific typesetting format, um, for the duration of your PhD and should therefore be able to read a lengthy list of documents about, you know, page margins, line widths, font sizes, um, and even caption types, and translate that totally into making your own template. And that's just a bunch of wasted work. So at some point, about a year ago, I took it upon myself to take the existing format, use it, other templates that I'd used at previous universities, and write my own updated one, and you know, uh, it worked. I've had m many, many emails and thanks, and I've even been acknowledged in one or two theses already. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, another thing that you mentioned in your talk is that a lot of PhD students don't know what their rights are when it comes to holiday, sick leave, the sort of things that if you work for a company, you'd learn about um, on your first day at work. Yes, exactly. So, 
yeah, there is this real information gap because being a PhD student is a very nebulous position. It's somewhere between training and employment. You're expected to do work, but you're not too accountable. And then sometimes you go out and do actual work in terms of teaching, but that's often in the framework of a zero hours contract, where again, a lot of things about, you know, sort of your rights to employment uh, don't really come up. So yeah, with PhDs, often you've come straight up the education track and you don't know that even in training, you have a right to sick leave. Often you have a right to paid sick leave. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the, the thing I did to address that was to, you know, sort of raise a ruckus as a student representative and talk about getting, you know, documentation rewritten and rewriting all of the welcome packs to make sure that this information is included and highlighted. Uh, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a big boon. Another issue for PhD students is that they're often working in isolation on their research, and it can be difficult for them to know how they're progressing, both scientifically and in terms of the academic requirements of a PhD program. One thing you've noticed is that there isn't a standard way to gauge progression. How can this problem be solved? Yes, yeah, so this is, uh, this is a thing that myself and another uh, PhD student I collaborated heavily with, Karen Craigie, uh, worked on a lot, which is um, mainly this issue that each year of a PhD kind of belongs to a different phase. So your first year should be about, you know, uh, establishing ground knowledge, um, attending some training, so workshops and the such like. Going into the second year, you should be really narrowing on a project and making progress and maybe be planning for the next project. And then towards the latter half of the third year, depending on how much funding you have, um, you should really be thinking about what's the form of the thesis, where am I going next? And this issue was at one end, you have the supervisor who's there every week uh, talking to you, you know, the good cases. And at the other end, you have just annual assessments that just say, what have you done? So what Karen and I worked on was designing a mentorship scheme with distinct sets of questions for each phase of the PhD, as well as general well-being questions, so that you can have a structured conversation with no none of this loose air um, where you can say, okay, this is the thing I want to talk about. Um, and it's been taken up very widely. It's now being applied to the majority of PhD students across the entirety of my university. So I'm very happy with that one. So Alex, attending conferences and workshops is a very important way for PhD students to forward their careers. But you found out that some students are often unaware of important conferences that they should be attending. How can that problem be solved? Yes. So this is, again, um, you know, a real issue with, uh, with networking, you know, knowing how to find a conference, knowing what kinds of meetings even exist. You know, people don't typically know the difference between a workshop, a symposium, a conference, a summer school, a winter school, a full on conference. So, um, you know, there's a lot of jargon in there and a lot of there's a, just a lot of institutes and lots of places that host these things. Um, so a thing that's been very important to me is really about making sure people can have access to the information that's helpful uh, for them. So whenever I find a good mailing list uh, that's, you know, has academics and students sharing information, I save that. And then whenever there's a new student joining the Institute or my group, um, or even just an individual meeting that I know is relevant, 
I send it to them. I say, this is what it is, and this is where you can find it. So sharing information like that is useful. And in the last year, um, I moved to a more, a more active form where, you know, my group's grown larger. We have a lot of overlap with groups at uh, other universities. So I've just sent an email going, okay, here is a new Google Sheet I've set up. And all in the different columns are, you know, name of the meeting, how much it costs, when it starts, what the deadline is. Um, and now there's a few people collaborating to just maintain the shared resource so that no one is missing out from, you know, uh, things that they would go to if only somebody told them. Now, some PhD supervisors are really good and others are not. And in your talk, you mentioned the need for having a formal process to deal with supervisory issues. What, what, what are the challenges there in terms of developing such a process? So yeah, the supervisor relationship is uh, perhaps the most important one for, for a PhD student. I've had different degrees of advice on this, on, you know, sort of, you know, choosing your supervisor even over the department, the university, uh, or part of the country it's in. And of course, the flip side of that is you are vulnerable if, say, you know, if, like, you know, even in the Mardis case, if just you and your supervisor don't get on, if you need direction and they are not a micromanager, you know, you know, both sides are good, but that's not a good combination. Um, and a thing I found is because people don't know their rights, they don't know that most universities are able to facilitate the, you know, moving you from one supervisor to another. And so again, this is a thing where one, we have tried to make very clear in communications who you can contact when it comes to supervisor difficulties, making sure people know it's possible to begin with. Um, and then, you know, we're in discussions across uh, a few universities in the CDT to see maybe if there's a way we can have it formally written down. Universities often feel it's a bit of a downer in their welcome packages to say, oh, if something goes wrong, you know, here's step by step what to do. But the reverse is people like, oh, okay, there's just an open-ended complaint and they don't see where it goes. And so that's a case where I'm pushing for it to be formalized, uh, you know, in discrete steps. So people have confidence that there is a process to follow. Thanks, Alex, for some really interesting points to think about for students, supervisors, and universities. And thanks for being on the podcast. You're very welcome, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Alex Coates, Freya Bull, Ben Gada, and Chris Hooley for joining me today. I would also like to thank the University of St. Andrews for inviting me to their CDT event in Edinburgh. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester explores how we can cut the carbon footprint of scientific supercomputing in a conversation with an astrophysicist and a mathematical physicist. The podcast is called Cutting the Carbon Footprint of Supercomputing in Scientific Research, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.